Thanks for listening to the CISO Diaries podcast. We're Leah. And I'm Sia. And we started this podcast with the intent to give CISOs and cybersecurity professionals a place to be their authentic selves. These are the unedited stories told of how they got into cybersecurity, their real struggles that they persevered through, their personal anecdotes that make them tick, and the leadership advice based on their own experiences. And we want to especially spotlight those that are contributing and giving back to the community apart from their day jobs. This podcast is for everyone, especially if you're a leader or someone aspiring to leadership. Who knows? You may find yourself working with these awesome leaders. So join us on your favorite podcast player. And please don't forget to subscribe, follow, like, and comment and engage in the conversation. And now let's get to know our CISO on our latest diary entry. Oh, yeah. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. We're here with another episode on the CISO Diaries podcast. I'm Leah, here with my co-host. See ya. Hi. Girl. (laughs) And a quick shout out to our sponsor, Cyber Future Foundation. They are a nonprofit organization focused on driving initiatives in cybersecurity workforce development and cyber peace. And I'm here with our guest, who is the CISO at Grand Canyon Education. He's previously been in threat prevention expert roles. He's an author and contributor for a joint book project, Understanding New Security Threats, and he's uh, Mr. Malware of the Mind Presenter. So Mike Manrod, welcome to our show today. Thank you, Leah, and thank you, Sia, as well. Great to be here. Happy Friday. Yes, happy Friday indeed it is. Um, We call it (laughs) Friday. So Mike, your CISO, which is not um, the easiest position for people to get into or a clear pathway necessarily, um, t- give us some uh, the background, your journey, you know, how you got started. I know you were in the Navy and walk us through how did you get to this position today, which is very exciting. Well, the funny part about my job that I have today literally is I'd refer to friend and then another mutual friend encouraged me to apply. I wasn't going to. Um, and ironically, I'll, I'll put my boss, Kathy, on the spot here if she listens to this later. But pretty much everybody who applied was actually more qualified. Um, and, and I got that feedback objectively later. But I listened in the interviews. I took very good notes and I showed up with a plan, like slides on what to do and what the strategy would be for Grand Canyon. Uh, this was now coming about five years ago. Uh, just about five years ago this week, I think that conversation took place. And in this, in my case, showing up with a plan uh, made a difference. Um, it, it was really great to experience the security programs at different places and formulate my playbook over time. I look back and laugh at some of my early ideas. So I, I think that that just shows we all evolve. And, um, and hopefully I look back at some of my ideas today, five years from now, and laugh at them too. Because uh, that's how we grow. But it's been a fun journey um, uh, from from the point at which I started in cyber a little over ten years ago to to you know enjoy it more and more every day I do it. I love it. So you actually came in with basically a for lack I'm a salesperson. So thirty sixty ninety is that what you kind of did was here's my vision of what I yeah. based on the information that was available. Here's how I can envision um, you know growing. Um, is, is that really basically what you just did? Yeah, that's exactly what I did. I I just took some notes and 
speculated on what they were probably missing based upon many other organizations I'd seen, the same size, same place in its evolution, and just speculated. And not even all of it was right. I definitely, we had to evolve that early plan a lot, but it gave a place to start. And uh, and it gave my boss who hired me, I think the assurance that we were going to get started and do something right away. We We weren't going to just sit there and let grass grow under our feet. I love that you said that you came with the plan and you took it proactively during the process of interviewing and talking to them. Um, I tend to do the same thing. And I think I was just lucky to have mentors early on who said, whatever you can do to differentiate yourself, go like do the work as if you're in the position and and show it to them. Um, And it does, it works. And, you know, I have a lot of mentees I work with, um, we teach, we coach them along kind of doing something similar because it's unfortunate, but those people that do come prepared, and I've been a hiring manager myself where I have had to interview many, um, a lot of them don't come with something like that. So it does set the person apart who's able to take that initiative and do that and show their thinking. Um, but my a question for you, because you said it's been about 10 years since ago, since you got into cybersecurity, um, prior to cybersecurity, security, what did you do? And then did you find it a struggle to get in um, based on what you did previously? It was hard to get in, to take these in reverse order. It was hard to get in initially, although I must say it was easier to get in a decade ago than it is today. Like there's a lot wow. of barriers as, as we've talked about. Um, what I, I, was a want, I was a nomad wandering for my career path before I found cyber. Uh, I was a corpsman in the Navy, so emergency medicine. Uh, I did things in and out of tech. I was a business operations manager. And I was doing, like, I, I wanted, I, I, I always felt like I was missing something until a buddy of mine, you know, took me to, to DEF CON as his plus one. He was speaking that year. And I forget exactly which year it was. And I dabbled in and around some cyber projects, but I came out and I just fell in love with it. Uh, and after that, I, I just volunteered for everything they'd let me do in addition to my my main job duties at the place I worked at the time. And eventually, I, I got was offered the opportunity to join the team uh, full-time as an analyst. Okay, so a couple of things that are striking me here. A, you knew someone that encouraged yep. you, right? Definitely. Two, again, going back to your interview, but also before that, is you did your research. You actually took the time to learn something. Is it because you're curious or is it because it was a topic that interested you? What was that motivation to, to say, okay, I kind of want to dig, I'm, I'm digging this. I want to check this out. Well, it was, it was funny because I was out for my friend who was giving this talk. Um, and I, I was actually out for beers with him after martial arts practice. And I was in the last bit of grad school and the last three classes were all cyber. And I knew I wanted to do more and more in tech, but I hadn't yet zeroed in on cyber specifically. So I was like, hey, dude, you know, you're giving this talk, you're doing all this cool stuff. Why don't you let me take you out for, for beers when I get into these classes? I'll interview you for like three hours and I'll just cite you as a source and you'll make my last three classes are easier. And he said, I'll do one better. If you drive and pay for gas, I've got the room and the plus one pass as a presenter at DEF CON. Just come on out with me. Wow. And, and uh, 
I don't have his permission to share that story. So I'll keep, I'll keep my friend anonymous. But then I came along expecting to just get good material to make it easy to write college papers. And once I got out there, my eyes were open. I was like, wow, this topic's going to be huge. And this is so cool. And I have no idea what any of this stuff does, but I really want to understand it and learn it. And I just fell in love with it right away. Love at first sight. Look at you. Yeah, because, you know, everyone knows security is sexy, everyone. Woohoo! It is now, but it it so wasn't then, though. (laughs) You know, when I went, like, my first security job back when I started, it was like, all right, the dingiest corner of the office spaces in the data center that have, like, the stains on the carpet that have been there for 10 years. And we were, like, the no people. And we sort of had to be there but stay out of everybody's way contrasted whereas now we're we're really at the table and involved in 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 the conversations within an organization okay i want to go a little deeper here on that because yeah you're right uh 10 years ago that's actually about when i got into cybersecurity from it and networking but an unconventional background being in that field too from pr and communications to fast forward Similar, right? Had to really get my hands on skill sets up, technology practice, as well as um, seized every opportunity that came my way that that would help me get break in. And um, the the point you were just saying, yeah, at the time we were cost center, right? It's like, oh, you're just going to want money, and no. And then you know now there's just so much conversation. I you know CISOs I talk to, and probably what you're you're faced with too is. We really need to have a narrative, right? That what is that story that translates easily to the other people outside of cybersecurity, the board, the executive team, that they can understand. So it's it's really about enabling their business, right? How can they do, you know, sell more through X e-commerce site and you know make more money and then give us money in turn because we're going to help them do that, right? And it's funny, I was talking to a couple of colleagues this week about some of that, that conversation. And I've been fascinated by and have studied it even outside of school psychology, because there's a lot of understanding how the human works and behaves to kind of relate to them, to get them to understand and to translate, right. And to kind of get on the same page in alignment. So you get what you want. Um, I think you're, as I understand it, pretty big too on that psychology and translating into cybersecurity. Tell us a little bit about that, because I, I know you have views and you probably use it every day in your job. Yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, so much great, great stuff to unpack there. And I'm so passionate about, you know, cognitive psychology and the overlaps and studying the overlaps between, you know, how people uh, interact and think and share information with each other and the parallels and what we can learn in both directions with how machines interact and share ideas. And I think we can actually, when we think of what we've learned with cognitive psychology, and apply it to machines, we have insights. And then when we apply those insights back, they have meaning. And for example, like we think of software as this tangible thing, but really it's just ideas. Like sheet music is human ideas expressed in a form where that human will can be carried out reliably on a machine, say a piano, with, with a desired output. Similarly, all of our programming languages are are the same thing. It's a representative language that allows for our machines to carry out our will in the world 
uh, even if it's like making a little blip move back and forth between two pong paddles, you know, whatever we find fun or engaging or enriching. Um, and when we begin to think of it that way, we can think of malware as just bad ideas, right? It, they're, they're bad ideas that our, our, our technology will take and do bad things with. You know, so I think it's fun to think about, all right, how do bad ideas influence as people, us as people? Uh, how, how does that exploitation process work if a bad idea hooks itself in my mind and you know, maybe leads me to take some undesirable actions in life? Similarly, you know, if I, if I execute a bad file on my host and it causes my, my MacBook to take all sorts of actions, well, that, that's similarly also uh, a bad idea is being carried out in the real world then. So, okay. So it sounds like to me then, much like everyone says, AI is only as bad as the programmer programs it to be. So I can't help but think you like the matrix, don't you? I do. I'm a huge fan. <laughs> no, no, I, mean, I, I love it. Yeah. No, I, when you were sitting there describing that, I was like, oh, wait a minute. I can literally like, again, when Matrix first came out, I, I was just fascinated the way they kind of humanized literally what malware is, right? Like all those bad guys are basically viruses, right? Like at least it's me extrapolating again. I haven't watched that movie in like decades, but that's kind of the vibe I'm getting right now. So when you're talking about like cognitive psychology, I mean, is how much of it of that human, the human fallibility come into play? Like, do you, do you see it? Um, and, and, and how would you address it? Or I guess, I, I guess I'm still trying to understand and grasp how you want to tie that or how you tie it in with cybersecurity. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So if we look at it, and ironically, a lot of the, a lot of the fascinating lessons relate to disinformation and taking the lessons the opposite direction. Because you know, the industry-wide, we're spending billions to deal with how bad ideas can ransom a school or a hospital. Um, but it seems like the topic of how bad ideas affect social structures and social platforms is only just now beginning to get a little bit of attention. Like, how does disinformation work? Well, it's pretty similar to how malware executes on a host. You have a vulnerability that's exploited with some sort of malicious communication, bad ideas that then get that host to run the ideas of somebody else, uh, you know, malware, uh, live off the land. And then there's command and control communication to reverse, the, to, to support ongoing infection of the attacker's objectives on the system. Well, as, as, as a person, we look at how our society is divided right now. Sometimes we look at disinformation campaigns, obviously with Russia looming over Ukraine. They always yeah. have a, a multi-phase playbook. They're, they're compromised. There's cyber. There's kinetic. There's disinformation. You know, we're talking a lot about false flags right now. Like, hey, a pretext of we're going to make it look like we're defending ourselves by preempting some narratives and actions when really we're the aggressor here. So if we look at it on people, how does how does cognitive malware, malware of the mind work? Well, if I have a bias, a prejudice, a, a, a decision-making heuristic, a very carefully crafted idea might exploit that to cause an amygdala hijack. What? You're, they're going to do what? Or so-and-so is like such-and-such? Well, now all of a sudden, as Daniel Kahneman has outline system one, system two, thinking and thinking fast and slow, 
you know, a lot of like years of cognitive research, cognitive psychology, psychology research come into play here. Um, we, it's the same, it's the same idea. We can get uh, attacker ideas to exploit a vulnerability in my thought processes to escalate privileges on my mind to run the attacker controlled ideas. And then next thing I know, I'm taking actions that I wouldn't have taken otherwise. And then of course, what's the command and control for, for mental malware? It's of course, social media and social platforms. Okay, you touched on a lot there, but I want to get some perspective from you on something that is um, pretty top of mind these days, but just with regards to risk management. Um, and you, I, you made me think of something when I was thinking vulnerability management, but risk assessments, right? Um, and just personal passion for me, I, I'm involved in some groups and conversations where, you know, just trying to look at how can we evolve that process, Right. Um, overall, because then you think about, okay, with all the industrial control systems, you need to be able to figure out and audit and assess the PLCs, actuators, you know, HMIs, et cetera, Um, non-Windows traditional, right? But not every assessment covers that. And there's definitely room to evolve and and you hear about that. And then sure, you know, over the years, you're seeing how can we now quantify those risks, right? Because again, back to that narrative and trying to you know, with the human language, we have to communicate to our boards and our executive teams. Um, And I keep going back to, you know, figuring out additional ways to evolve those assessments that can correlate back to not just like where we're weak in the system and the technology. And I know it can call out the people, right? The humans, but then, you know, take that human aspect of it and figure out how you build upon it to say, okay, maybe we caught the weak links and it's the employee, but then why go beyond that, right? Where was it right. that they were weak? And then what is that that we have to then do to to help them prevent it in the future or so that they learn? Is it skilling? Is it, you know, and kind of drill deeper into like the human capabilities, why it happened, and then take a different kind of measure or pr- approach that, actually is more targeted to the training we can do in the upskilling. But I'm curious to get your perspective on that um, based on all of the, what you were mentioning that I think can apply. It's, it's such a great topic with uh, risk assessment. And obviously we're all talking a lot about third party risk, yep. our own risk. And then that feeds into some great topics uh, on, on cybersecurity strategy and just technology mm-hmm. strategy in general. But I feel like risk assessment has to start with the business objective. Like, who are the people that make up an organization? Who are the stakeholders? What do they care about? You know, availability might be what matters. Like you mentioned, OT. OT availability may be the main thing, whereas integrity and confidentiality may be the main thing for another org. So I feel like it all starts with understanding the business objectives and then how technology is a part of delivering on value chains and delivering the value that an organization has. And then from there, I think there's a simplified view of threat and attack, where if we break it down, all attacks start one of two ways, right? The entry point, there's two simple types, those that involve human interaction, those that don't. From there, there's different delivery mechanisms that involve people and obviously applications and systems and infrastructure. But I feel like if we prioritize, align the objectives, 
with how an attacker would compromise the things that matter most, it, we can then begin to get a really clear picture of our true risk path, our real, real risk pathways, and then how we should align our strategy to mitigate the risks that matter most versus just buying the latest shiny product that had the best marketing message. Thank you for that. Yep. I like, I love that. Right on point. <laughs> I took copious okay. notes just now. Just want you to know that. And I, I swear that, that that segment right there was so quotable. I just want you to know I'm going to quote you. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm, I'm honored. I'm honored. I, I'm sure if I said something great there, I probably just heard it from somebody else and assimilated a few things. Uh, but you know what? Sometimes a truth is repeatable for a reason, right? And and that's that's the bottom line. Yeah, it it really is. I mean, you know, it, and I was just talking with a friend who called me between meetings before this discussion, and we're 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 having this really great discussion about how until we learn to say new things about the problem, look at it in new ways, we're only going to have the same outcomes that we've always had. And, you know, I, I really think we have to start looking at this differently and talking about it differently so that we can move the needle because we just keep spending more and working harder without moving the needle. Isn't, yeah, isn't well, the, I was going to say, isn't that the definition of insanity? I was, yeah. was going to say the same thing. Yeah. Talk about that wavelength. They're <laughs> similar, right? And back to psychology there. Agree. Um, okay. Question for you, Mike, because this has come up a lot for me lately. Um, just in broader discussions is agree. We need to look at the problems differently to solve for them in a better way so that we're not doing the same thing. And then years later, we still have those same problems, right? Um, I've been uh, challenged and challenging others at the same time where you have to then admit and everyone has to be at least on the same page that there is that problem, right? to start really using the diversity in the room to kind of brainstorm on, then let's look at how we solve it. What is what? And I ask this because you're a CISO and it's part of leadership. And for others who are, you know, you can maybe give some guidance to who are on their way into being a CISO or in general as you know, they're, they're looking for leadership guidance, but there are some schools of thoughts or it's been the circumstance. You can talk about the problems initially to bring it up so that everyone can understand what it is. So you can go into, now let's look at problem solving. There are some that will say, oh, that's negative thinking because you've addressed mm -hmm. the problem and you've pointed out the problem. And it's not that it's negative thinking. I, I don't believe it's just the reality, but those are some of the people that are maybe part of the problem and don't want to be that person that admits there is a problem so how do you, would you guide on those discussions so that maybe they don't even want to hear the word problem, quote unquote, because um, you got to bring them back in, right? So that, that they don't just have this perception of negative thinking. Any guidance there? Because I think it's a tough one that some of us deal with. Yeah. And it's a cliche we all fit into so much. Like, like we're the no people is one I have kind <laughs> right. of grown up in this work hearing, right? Um, you know, I've definitely been called that. And I've even, I think one of the first things, it goes back to the risk assessment you talked about. Part of it is us putting ourselves in check to realize 
when we're not prioritizing things well, and even being open to being called out. Like there have been a lot of times I'm called out like, hey, Mike, you're freaking out about this, but is this really a risk? How exactly would you exploit this? And then asking that question of each other on security teams, like, okay, I realize our vulnerability tool says this is a high, but relative to all these risks we've prioritized, like, is it really? Like, like, yes, it's a high objectively based on CVSS score, but is it a really high relative to our enterprise risk? And then I think, I think if we align business enablement more so we're seen as partners, yes, we do have to bring up problems and issues, but I, I love the chocolate and the peanut butter that make the Reese's mm. Cup when we talk about things like, like WAF and CDN. Like, gosh, I really hate people attacking my websites and not having enough visibility not having the tools to respond properly. And then meanwhile, there's a, a development leader who's over there saying, gosh, I, I hate that my site delivery and content delivery isn't as smooth and seamless as I want it to be. Well, great, you put it together. There's, there's multiple great products that allow you to have you know, distributed content delivery, protections for higher availability, and you get your security protections built in at once. So. You take the chocolate and the peanut butter, you put it together, and now you have a security project that's actually helping achieve better business outcomes. Um, clearly not everything we do in security achieves better business outcomes, <laughs> but if you can get one of those wins once a year, maybe it helps offset the, 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 the view that we're just the negative no people. Can I ask a candid question? Um, is this, is it common and, and you can speak for yourself or maybe amongst your circle of friends in the CISO leadership space. Do you see that when a CISO starts bridging that gap, starts speaking the business language, is it being received or is it still being pushed aside as, mm, I still feel like you're doing fancy words that I understand and I still hear no. Like, is there still a perception mm. that, wait, do you really speak my language? Is there acceptance? I, I love that you asked that because I think it depends on us if we're genuine, right? And we've all had those days where we're like, all right, we need to get this project approved and I'm just going to, through sheer force of will, get everybody over to my way of thinking. I've been guilty of that in plenty of meetings over the years. Those are the ones where people are like, uh, you know, they, they don't really buy in. But if it's genuine, if you really do care about the business objectives and you you put position it in terms of, hey, look, what we do, whether it's delivering education or delivering pizzas or delivering content on the web, if, if we have that conversation of, hey, what you do on the business side is important to me and I want to make sure you keep succeeding, how can we partner to do that? Hey, here's some examples of some things other organizations have run into. How can we make it so that you're safe from those negative outcomes? Yeah, that's, um, it's a, and, you know, thinking about just being in the cybersecurity role in general, right? There's so much that one, and this is where we get it being in the industry, right? This is what we live and breathe every day. Outside of the industry, um, people that are in other industries, they don't, it's, it's hard for them to get it, right? Just like for me. I can imagine what it must like must be like to be a surgeon, but I will never fully get it, right? To be literally that close and responsible to a human's life. Um, and so that 
being able to have the conversation, read the people, um, translate the business and deal with all the technology and constant ups. I mean, it is a lot when you really pack it all in that an individual or a CISO has to really think about um, not just from a technological um, aspect, right? But from a very psychological human aspect of being in say the role that you're in. I don't know any advice on how to better manage it. Cause when you really break it down, it's, it's a lot. And I think people struggle with that and are constantly trying to figure out where are those areas I can improve on and how do I remember everything? You know, not that maybe we strive for perfection, even though that doesn't exist, but you know, what would you say or pass along from things you've learned over the years? So First, something I learned from my good friends, uh, Mike Eccles and Daniel Schuler, is you can't tackle everything at once. And a maturity model is very useful, right? And keeping our own sanity and keeping the sanity of those we work with. If we try to go day one in a brand new organization that it's a low maturity level, like let's just use numbers and say they're at a maturity level 0.5 or 1, you're not going to get them to five by the end of the year. That's going to be a multi-year journey and the expectations need to be set properly for that. And along that journey, um, I think it starts with the foundation of good tools and visibility. And it's an engineering problem in the beginning. Like if we walked into just a small dental office in a strip mall that had 25 employees, we'd walk in and the tools would be the first conversation. Oh, you're not running antivirus. You don't have windows set to auto update. You don't have an edge firewall, but you're hosting a website here. Hey, who updates this website? Very like, and in a, in a small business like that, it would be really simple conversations like that. If it's a big enterprise, obviously it's more complex things, but it starts with the tools that give you the basic protection and visibility. Then once you have the tools, you have things flowing out of those tools. Alerts, whoa, wow, I put in a firewall. It's blowing me up with all these things happening. Okay. Well, then you build the response tier and it starts with the fundamentals of security operations and just triaging, you know, getting to know the environment. And then, whoa, we have this, this really stands out. You evolve incident response all the way down to like, whoa, we found a digital cold, you know, dead body cold on the floor. HR dumped a laptop on my desk and wants to see if something bad happens on it. Then you have advanced disciplines like forensics. So then you have a foundation of good tools that's evolving along a trajectory. Then you have the workstation, the, the work stream of evolving effective response using those tools and processes. Then to get that final leap of maturity, it comes down to GRC and governance risk. And not usually the compliance is there all along, but GRC is that final boost to truly reach excellence in cyber. Because let's face it, you know, we we have tools, we're putting people in bee netting, we're giving them fly, we have response, we're giving them fly swatters and flamethrowers. But if the business comes in and takes a beehive and smashes it into the ground, you know, every three to five days, and there's thousands of bees going around angry, no matter how well we do those first two things, the, we won't get very far without the third. So I think it goes along maturity models and life cycles. And if we sell that incremental stair-step scaffolding process to leadership and evangelize it, 
um, then I think people will be comfortable that it's an evolution and we're not trying to force some huge agenda all at once. I'm just going to apologize to the listeners because we're audio only, but that was a great visual demonstration. We got to see live recording. So thank you for that. Oh, no, no. Oh, audience. I'm memifying that. Uh-uh. No, no, no. That was like the best thing I have seen in a long time. And the way you were wording it simultaneously, like, like, Mike, where have you been? Like, I love you. I love this. But you know what I love even most thing what you just shared in your answer and again I, I love a maturity model of the organization right to be able to really fully suss out exactly how you're going to approach the business conversation but you named like 50 different cybersecurity disciplines in that summary and that encourages domains <laughs> dom- okay I girl you can you can list them for me but what I'm saying is I just in my head is like there's 50 50 jobs right there right of of disciplines of the the level of studies um specification in, in focus right like you know this excites me because there's so much opportunity within cybersecurity so much within leadership and for those that are looking to do their career to explore multiple options so can i ask you in your organization or just your personal experience there are some disciplines that can overlap that maybe feed into others a little bit more naturally than others. But what are your thoughts about cross-pollination and cross-training? Or if someone wants to go into GRC, for example, I affectionately call Leah and her peoples like, you know, masochists, like, you know, and in varying degrees of masochism. Is that something that you encourage? Is it possible? Am I uh, just dreaming here as an outsider? Help me understand your view. Well, you really outlined the benefit of being a part of a small to medium cyber team versus a massive one. Um, Because the size and scale at which things are done leads to more or less specialization and more or less flexibility. As as something becomes more mature, uh, as processes become more cemented, you you lose a little bit of agility and that's a natural part of growing up. You know, when you're 40, you can't go do the same things you used to do when you were five. Mm -hmm. You know, similarly in cyber. Go ahead. Yep. Uh, well, don't upset yeah, okay, me with your forty-year-old analogy, sir. I think you need to revise <laughs> that. I'm kidding. <laughs> okay, so so I probably will do some sidewalk chalk with the kids later. So maybe that analogy doesn't all the way stand up. But a small team sometimes everybody looks like, hey, I'm going to go to this massive team. I'm moving up in the world. Well, there's some advantage to being in a small to medium organization where there is a lot a lot more agility and cross-pollination. I do have to say, though, you can create a culture. And on our team, we do that. Like People get to pick a lot of what they want to do. And um, the other cool thing is if you look at disciplines like GRC, that could be a whole lifelong career path, or, or administration and engineering you know, and solutions and tools, or SOC all the way through IR and forensics, the cool thing about these verticals is they have on-ramps that can get you started as a brand new beginner. And they can they involve lifelong pursuits of excellence that you won't get bored with. Like if you stay in GRC for two, three decades, there's infinite depth of things you can learn and grow in there. And same with same with SOC and DFIR, same with tools and solutions. 
Okay. I want to, I'm going to pull some, a quote that you, um, it was in an article I read that you were quoted on and you were taught, you talked to students and, you know, I think you coach and mentor them and in getting into the field. Um, but you, in this specific quote, it said that you basically want to remind students that a career in the field may not always look the way they expect. It's more about adapting what they enjoy and what they're good at into a cybersecurity job. And then you listed cybersecurity jobs within the fields like journalism and business, for example. Okay, tell us about that, because that's a big thing I've been emphasizing as well. And my path in was definitely not what I expected, but I had to kind of roll with it and take opportunities and use the skill sets I had at the time to, to translate over into cyber, which I look back on it now, and I don't know that I'd redo my path, even though I thought at one point I would. So when you're you know talking to students and mentoring others who are trying to get in, what's, you know, share any other guidance or some tips for them, because there's a lot of those that are listening to this. Um, and I think you bring up some really valid points on how they can go about still getting in, but even though it's not directly right, right into being in a sock role, for example. I think the key there, and it really is a great topic to think about. I think the key there is one, doing a self-assessment of why you want to go into cyber, what you like doing with your day, what, what excites and lights you up, and then mapping that to a path. Right. Like if you love to write and analyze and you love business and discussions and spreadsheets and tracking things and well, OK, well, you might just naturally and maybe you even even had an adjacent possible or related role. It might path you right into GRC and that might be perfect. You know, if you're coming out of a network operations center and knock, if you're if you're a, if, if you've got a background in responding to things, heck, a good friend of mine is actually. Uh, got into forensics through law enforcement, mm-hmm. and they trained him in it. So he started at the at the opposite end as a forensics analyst, and then you know worked into all sorts of other cool things. So I think it's like doing a self assessment and an inventory of what you like, what you're good at, then looking at the at the jobs posted and the on ramps available to get on the expressway of cyber and tech, and then matching yourself to the right on ramp. And then, of course, you'll notice things like maybe the on-ramp has a speed limit 65, and I've got a a governor on my engine that won't let me go over 35. Well, that's where skill development and enrichment comes in. But with with beginning with the end in mind with a specific pathway. I do love your analogies. I was just going to (laughs) say, I... Nothing tickles me more to understand a concept. I guess I'm visual. You gave me a visual that I can actually relate to. And, and it's understandable for, you know, the non-techies of the world. I think that helps to, for those that are actually want to transition or considering a career in it. Let me ask you this, because I've we've seen this before, Leah. Mm-hmm. Some of my really great friends that are, that are, that were writers, that were uh, journalists. Why is it that, that I see so many former journalists go into cybersecurity? What is it about it that seems, I see a lot more connection than just a random, you know, I like underwater basket weaving. I've decided to go into cyber. I just don't see that as fluidly as, you know, I mean, I see a ton of journalists going into it. So what is it? What's the deal? What's the connection, guys? OSINT. <laughs> OSINT, yeah. yeah. Well, you- you you said it you said it perfectly, Leah. I mean, there's so many skills that a journalist could build on to get that career path started. They probably have research and OSINT skills. 
They probably have communication skills. They're, they're used to surveying geopolitical factors in the world and how they map out. So naturally, it makes them a great analyst, whether, whether it's, you know, maybe their on-ramp is at the midpoint in, in, in like a research or CTI and threat intel area. Maybe their on-ramp is GRC. And, you know, whereas everybody else is like, oh, gosh, I don't want a policy. They're like, oh, I'm going to fix and rewrite all the policies. So I could see... I could see a lot of places where a journalist or a writer would thrive in cyber. Okay, I'm going to ask it. We know uh, it's in your bio, but you like to play video games with your kids. Do you think after and you know, uh, do you think after playing video games with your kids and kind of seeing their how they react and they're ingrained in that? Um, do they want to go into cyber? Do they look at you and say, you know, I think I want to do this because. <laughs> well, my older daughter is actually about to start the Grand Canyon University Cyber Program here in the fall. Oh, so I congrats. have, I have a, thanks. Yeah. So by the way, you daughter, don't look old I'm, enough to have a daughter going in that uh, direction in school. Well, so uh, there yeah, you no, go. <laughs> you know, you threw me off here, kid. I know. I'm like, <laughs> what 18 year old likes to play sidewalk chalk? I'm like, I want to hang out with your daughter. That's fun. <laughs> I'm gonna guess yeah, another. She actually time. does, yeah. Yeah, does she? But, but I have I have them spanning you know a variety of ages, and I have some really into cyber, and some really you know, a couple of my kids are really good at fixing things and don't have any interest in cyber, and you know they each have their their own unique strengths and strong points. So, it, but the video games, there I love the video games. I just need them to get in trouble less so that they have screen time so that I can play video games with them. So oh I don't know. Okay. I, they they got to get it. They, they got to behave. Okay. What games, what games are you actually playing with them? So my older daughter who'd be old enough for some of the more adultish games does like has some pretty, pretty good standards defined for herself and wouldn't play them. So, you know, it's all PG 13 at most. So we, you know, Minecraft, Mm-hmm. Mario stuff like that. Occasionally, I'll go out and 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 play some of the first person shooter games with friends. But you know, usually if I'm playing video games, it's stuff like Cars, Mario Kart, Minecraft, things that the younger kids can participate into. I love it. Well, I, I, I this is more of a selfish question for me, and and you'll find it very quickly. I'm very selfish. I, I have a lot of needs here, Mike. Um, but I <laughs> do have a question on this. Is uh, I work with a lot of folks in the gaming and esports uh, industries, and I'm talking to a lot of these folks, and I say this over and over again, and you guys tell me, Leah, call me out on this. I feel very strongly that gaming is a wonderful entry to getting the kids excited and whet their appetite on looking at Steam STEM, and then by virtue of that initial entry, looking at cybersecurity as a career path. Do you guys think I'm on crack by saying, yeah, let the kids play some games, let them get a taste of a potential of a digital world and environment. I mean, what do you guys think? I think, I think you're right on the money with that. I mean, I think, I think we need to encourage people, you know, newcomers, you know, children to interact with technology in constructive and fun ways. There's some dark games that I'm not sure make the world a better place. So I won't get too far into that either. Even though some of them I think are fun, you know, afterwards you're like, uh, maybe, maybe I didn't want to put all of that into my mind. Um, <laughs> but but it, you know, it, at the end of the day, I think it is. And I, I think there's even you know, gamifying the learning process, stuff like try hack me and 
think, you know, organizations like ABL that have put a lot of work into, you know, over the wire, under the wire, there's so many great projects that help people to go along a gamified learning journey. And obviously on the university at higher ed side, we're all trying to do a little more with at least complementing what we do with that. Um, and then obviously the ultimate game of all is CTFs. I encourage everybody to get out there, compete in all the CTFs. You know, I, I don't score well, you know, I'm a manager. I, I go out there and I make myself look bad. I've never got the highest score or whatever. That's okay, I learn a ton, I have fun. Sometimes I meet new people. So I, the, the, the ultimate gamification, you know, starting with everything from Minecraft to doing some Minecraft development, all the way ramping up to competing in, you know, Splunk Boss of the Sock and, you know, CactusCon CTF and DEFCON and all these different CTFs. You know, I think gaming makes learning fun. I agree. And it's and it, it helps to introduce it to the younger kids in the classrooms, even younger than high school. I know CISA and the Pacific, you know, um, Northwest National Lab, PL, they have uh, partnered together to offer the on mobile devices the games for cybersecurity threat simulation. Um, definitely it helps. And I think more of it uh, to your point, Mike. I know we're wrapping up here, but before we kind of do, because um, maybe the listeners heard it too. We heard a little puppy in the background. Can you just tell us what kind of puppy he is? Because we can see, or he or she, but we can see your puppy and adorable. Yeah, so that's Teddy. He he is our, our little bundle of barks and joy of about 10 pounds soaking wet. And he was a rescue left at a gas station in a cardboard box, I, I guess about nine, 10 years ago now. And He's just a, he's just a ton of fun. So that's that's Teddy, and uh, on video frequently he will join panels and and you know vlogs and different things where he'll just jump up on my lap and assert himself in the conversation. Well, Teddy is adorable. So hopefully um, after this, others will follow kind of where you're gonna, going to be speaking and get to see you on a panel virtually or in person, and maybe see Teddy sometime. Um, Mike, I just want to thank you so much for being here with us today, sharing so much about your, your path, all the work you do, giving us a lot of education, things to think about, your humor. Um, before we, I guess, close it on out, um, top three kind of takeaways you want to leave us with today? Yeah, this has been wonderful. Uh, what a great conversation both of you have, have led and facilitated here. What I would like people to take away, especially people looking to get into cybersecurity, be curious, develop out a home lab, whether you're getting practical skills in gamification like we talked about, or CTFs, or if you build a home lab, uh, a few of us collaborated on an article that'll come out in Info Security Pro magazine on how to build your home lab or cyber range. But like whatever method, be curious, get practical hands-on skills. And if you go to a job interview, show up with a plan and a way to really showcase your skills not just having memorized the same answers to the same questions everybody else is going to get. Love it. We are pre-recording prior to March 1st, but when we publish this, we are going to link to that article because that is awesome. And again, on video, we see you have an amazing home lab back there. <laughs> nice. oh, no. Hey, yeah. everyone's going to see it. Everyone's going to see it because I'm, I'm memifying that. Like, yeah. you know, that there you go. Yeah. So. Oh, my goodness. Great. Mike, it was a true pleasure. And um, on that note, everyone, I think this is a great ending for another entry of the CISO Diaries. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye.